Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you, Father, for the gift of marriage. And we praise you for giving Karat, a a wonderful woman of God, to share his ministry. And this morning, Lord, we want to think about marriage as you have designed it and to learn better what your design was in the beginning and what it is still today so that we can pursue a marriage that is pleasing to you and our young people would have something to aspire to and those of us who are married perhaps may be encouraged in that direction or find things that need to be repented of in our marriages so that we can be more like Jesus Christ and show the world what God is like by the way that we love one another. And so, Father, we pray that you'd bless this time now and we give you praise and thanksgiving for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years in my ministry, I found that one of the most common and thorny issues that frequently comes uh, to my attention by people who uh, attend this church has been the whole constellation of questions relative to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There's an awful lot of misunderstanding about this subject, even within the church. We would expect that to be the case outside the church. We would expect that to be true of people who don't know the Lord and don't have his word. But there's a lot of misunderstanding about these issues, even with inside the church. But the Bible speaks clearly about these issues. And so as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians, we want to delve into these issues because that's what Paul does next. And so having completed uh, our study of the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, we now come to chapter 7. And I don't want you to turn to chapter 7 this morning, however, because this morning, before we jump into that difficult text, uh, not that it's difficult to understand, but it may be difficult for some of us to receive, before we jump into 1 Corinthians 7, I thought it would be good for us to spend some time thinking about the glory of marriage. Let's not jump into talking about divorce and remarriage. Let's talk about the glorious thing that marriage is as God has designed it. Marriage is a glorious thing. And I just got to tell you personally, I love being married. I love my wife. She's my dearest friend, my closest confidant, my ministry partner, my helper, my chief counselor, and the one that I delight to be with more than anyone else in the world. I have other friends But my friendship with them is infinitesimally small and insignificant compared to my relationship with my wife. I love being married. It is the greatest joy of my earthly existence and something that I look forward to at the end of day when 5 o'clock comes around and it's time for me to leave the ministry behind here at the office. I look forward to going home. I want to be home. I want to be home on time if possible. Because I want to be where my wife is and where my children are. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that marriage is always easy and fun. Sometimes it is excruciatingly difficult. And that because of sin, usually mine. But the Lord has been so faithful in his, to give us his word. And his word has proven itself to be singularly sufficient to bring us to repentance in every case and lead us into a deeper devotion and joy as a married couple than what we had previous to uh, dealing with whatever sin happened to come in and interrupt us. John Piper wrote a book recently called This Momentary Marriage. And in the beginning of it, his wife has a little section where she introduces the book and talks about their marriage and and, uh, how... How wonderful it is to be married to a guy like John Piper and how difficult it is to be married to a guy like John Piper. And she talks about the pendulum of marriage, how it goes from wonderful and beautiful to, to painful and terrible and how like a, like a pendulum it swings back and forth. And I, I pulled one sentence from that. She writes, the pendulum of our marriage oscillates and sometimes wobbles, but... It is suspended from above and is firmly attached. And by God's grace, it will not crash to the ground. That's the appropriate perspective to have. I love being married. And I want those who are 
under my preaching and teaching to love being married because God has called us to this, not only for his glory, but for our own joy. And so today, before we get into the issues of divorce and remarriage, I just want to take a, 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 one message, this opportunity to talk to you about the glory of marriage. The fact is, marriage was God's idea. He invented it. He instituted it for his glory and for our joy. And so let's begin this morning by talking about God's perspective on marriage. What was God thinking when he came up with the idea of marriage? What was that all about? What is the purpose, God's purpose for marriage? Well, God's purposes for marriage, uh, if you're taking notes, this is one. God's purposes for marriage. And I want to give you a few purposes that I believe uh, we can derive from God's word. In order to do that, I want you to turn with me all the way back to the passage of Scripture that Brett read earlier, and that's Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And Genesis 1, 2, and 3 really lay the groundwork for uh, all of the essentials of having a true biblical anthropology. In other words, a truly biblical understanding of man. In order to get that, you really need to start with Genesis, because all of the other biblical authors who contribute this Go back to Genesis, and that's the case with marriage as well. Now, we don't have time to read all of this. You know Genesis 1 is the creation account, God creating uh, all that is. He created light. He created the planets and the stars. He created the earth and vegetation. Then he created the animals, and then he created man on the same day. And in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we find all of this creativity coming out of God. And we discover several purposes in the middle of all of that, several purposes for marriage. And purpose number one is this. Purpose number one for marriage is to magnify the glory of God. The purpose of marriage, fundamentally, is to magnify the glory of God. And so notice with me in chapter 1, verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now stop right there because this... This is a key portion of Scripture. In fact, over the past year, my study of the image of God has really affected the way this church thinks about ministry and how we think about the purpose that God has for our lives and an understanding of why we exist. We exist. We're not going to get into our mission statement here, but we exist for this purpose. We exist to show forth the glory of God, or to image forth the glory of God. That's the whole point of God creating man in his image. He wants the world to look at us individually and the way we relate to one another and see the glory of God. That's why we exist. And so when God created man, he didn't create them like, uh, like the animals, for mankind, it was different. God gave man some of his own attributes. We call them communicable attributes because they are shared with us. There are other attributes of God like his sovereignty, like his omniscience, like his omnipresence that he doesn't share with us. But there are attributes of God that he does share with us. And those are the imprint of God upon humanity so that when the world looks at us, they see him. It's like a king creating statues of himself and putting them up all over his kingdom so that to the farthest reaches, and, I, and I've been over into some of the former Soviet Union, and you, you see, or used to be able to see, statues of Stalin everywhere because he was setting up his image in every place so that everyone would see the image of the king and know who it was who was in charge. And that's why we exist. 
God wants his glory manifest all over the earth. And so that's the first purpose of God creating marriage. He said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And then he put man and woman together so that his image could not be procreated, manifest outside, other than the two coming together as one. In fact, that's the second purpose, not only to magnify the glory of God, but to procreate the image of the glory of God in man. It was not enough for the glory of God to be set on display in two people. Two perfect people, that's wonderful. That would maybe have been sufficient in our minds to see a, a visible manifestation of what God is like. And yet, in God's mind, uh, that, was, that was too small a goal. His goal is to fill the earth with the glory of God. And you know what? We saw that video from Karat about the statistics of birth rates around the, around the world and how the former Christian nations, their birth rate is so low, it's no longer high enough to sustain the culture. And some of the countries are saying, we no longer have any hope that our culture is going to last beyond the next 30 to 40 years because the birth rate is so low. We've become so self-centered that we abort the babies and we refuse to have babies because we want to be comfortable. But that's not the case in the Muslim world. And the image of God is not being procreated as it should. And I don't want to get into all of that this morning, but I do want us to consider the reality that God has a goal in marriage and it's to magnify his glory. And part of magnifying his glory is to have children who will be raised up to love the Lord Jesus Christ so they too can magnify his glory. And so God ordained that within the parameters of marriage, children would be born who would also bear the likeness of their creator so that they too would grow up to show the world what God is like. Look at verse 28. And God said, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over all the living things that move upon the earth. And notice too that their fruitfulness was given as a blessing. And we see this throughout the scriptures. This was not a curse. This was before sin happened. God created man and woman so that they would have children, so that the earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord. And so we read in texts like in Psalm 127, 3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's not a curse. It's not a burden. It's difficult. But it's a reward. And so God was out to display his glory through the joy of his people and through having children. And what a joy that is, to raise children who love God. You know, we've got two that are leaving the home now, and oh, how we prayed over the years and continue to pray for our younger ones now. But to see two boys who, um, who love God and are passionate about telling people about the glory of Jesus Christ, I'll tell you what, I mean, besides being married to a godly wife, there isn't any greater joy than to have godly children. Amen? The Lord knew what he was doing. The Lord knew what he was saying. It was for our good. And so God was out to display his glory through the joy of his people in marriage. But there was still another reason why God established marriage. He gave it to mankind for companionship. He gave marriage to us for companionship. And this is really what I, where I want to camp out for the rest of our time together. Um, companionship needs to be a dominant aspect of marriage in our thinking. God didn't just put us together so that we could get a job done. 
God put us together to enjoy one another. And by living in fellowship with one another, we demonstrate what God is like, who in the Trinity lived for eternity past in perfect fellowship, lacking nothing. He did not create mankind to fulfill some kind of relational void in himself. He was perfectly sufficient in himself and perfectly satisfied within himself as the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and needed nothing in return. So why did he create man? It wasn't that he had nothing to do one day and said, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, I don't know. Let's create something. That's a good idea. What do you want to create? That wasn't it at all. God set out to go public with his glory. There were no other creatures to enjoy the glory of God. There were no other creatures who could magnify and tell one another and sing about the great glory of God. And so the creation was all about God going public with his glory and sharing himself with all that exists. Now, there are many who believe that marriage was designed simply for procreation for the human race. In reality, however, marriage was established to show the world what God is like. And one of the eternal attributes of God, as I said, is companionship. And brothers and sisters, it's so important that we understand this. Look at uh, Genesis 2, verse 18. And then the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, isn't it interesting, the very next thing God does, do you know what the next thing God does is? In the very next verse, he says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. What does that have to do with Eve? Nothing. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called that creature, that was his name. And then the man gave names to the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. You know what God was doing? I think what God was doing was he was saying, look, Adam, we got two of those. We got two of those. We got, we got two hypers. Hypotamus, how do you say that? Hypotamoi, hypotamai. Two giraffes, two cows, two dogs, two rabbits. Hmm. What do you think? And uh, Adam's going, well, how come there's two of everything except me? How come I don't have somebody? I think that was exactly God's point. Adam was saying, there isn't anything that you've created that could be mine. If it's not good for me to be alone, And why am I alone? God, give me someone to share life with. I believe God created us. He hardwired us to have those kinds of thoughts. God, it's not good for me to be alone. Now, understand, I understand. I understand that, as Paul says, and we'll see this in 1 Corinthians 7, that there are some people whose spiritual gift, one of their spiritual gifts is God has has so hardwired them that They don't sense that need so that they can be free to do ministry as the Apostle Paul did and as Jesus did. But you know what? For most of us, for most of us, it's not that way. Generally speaking, we are all hardwired to long for companionship in this life. And so God showed Adam that there was something he lacked so that he would desire the very thing that he needed. And so that's what happened. God put Adam to sleep. He took one of his ribs. It's the first surgery in the Bible. And he forms Eve out of the body of Adam. And he, he wakes up uh, after that surgery. And the Lord God, verse 22, fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And Adam said, wow. <laughs> it's in the Hebrew right there. 23. Then the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, 
because she was taken out of man. He knew this wasn't like any other creature on the world in the world. This is my companion. The Bible even refers specifically to the fact that companionship is a key element of marriage, and you see this throughout the Bible, a couple of significant places. Proverbs 2.17, where uh, Solomon is warning his sons about the strange woman, the adulterous wife, and notice how he describes her relationship to her husband. She's violating that relationship, but he says... Um, that the strange woman, the adulteress, leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. The companion of her youth was given to her in covenant. It's not just a promise. It's a covenant. When you get married, it's a covenant. It's not a business deal. It's a covenant And in the Old Testament, when they were to do covenant together, a lot of times, like in the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham entering into covenant with God, they would kill animals, they would cut them in half, and they would make a little uh, path between the two pieces of dead carcasses, and they would hold hands, and they would walk through the, the rows of dead animals, and they would declare their vows to one another. And in so doing, they were saying something like this, May what happened to these animals happen to me if I should ever break this covenant. That's what a covenant is. It's a promise until death do us part. Malachi 2.14, the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against you whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God saying, I gave her to you, and you are treating her badly. And I hate that. Because it does not magnify the glory of eternal God who lives in perfect fellowship with the other persons of the Trinity. Three in one. In marriage, it's two who are one. J. Adams points out that the word in the Hebrew translated companion in this verse has the idea that it is one who is tamed or one who is a close, intimate relationship with another person. The idea here is it's, it's virtually impossible to establish a relationship with a wild animal, but that's not the case with one that has been tamed. And you know what? That's a big problem in marriage because two sinful people enter into marriage and they're both wild. They're wild at heart. <laughs> Don't read that book. It's, it's never mind. But, um, but you enter with untamed hearts. You, you, want, you want to enjoy life together, but your heart is untamed. One or both partners comes into the relationship with that untamed heart, and that is they want to be wild and free, even though they are now bound together as one. You heard Karat say a little while ago that he's getting used to saying we, 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 rather than I, 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 because it now is we. It just doesn't work if you're wild at heart in marriage that you think of your wife as one component of your life, but that you have another, a whole set of other equal components that you can either take or leave. But marriage just doesn't work that way. When a couple gets married, they enter into a binding covenant with each other and with God that they will no longer live for themselves, but for the companion that they now have whom they love. And they leave their father and mother and their previous friendships and cleave to one another in singular devotion. In other words, when a married couple changes their relationship with one another in covenant to one another, they also change all of the other relationships that they're tied to. And all men and women, especially those of you who are thinking about marriage or preparing to get married or who are recently married or struggling in marriage, Let me just tell you, as a pastor counselor who deals with marriage situations on a regular basis, almost a daily basis in my ministry, one of the biggest problems that we see in marriage is that 
a husband and a man and a woman will leave and cleave to their wife, but no matter where they live, they may live on the other side of the planet, but they never really did leave mom or dad. When they have a problem, when she, especially the wife, when the wife has a problem with her husband, she calls mama. And mama says, oh, honey, I'm so sorry, that bad man. Let me give you counsel. This is what you should do. And if you're a mother, can I just exhort you? Don't do that. Don't do that. You just keep your nose out of the tent. Leave them alone. If your daughter comes to you and says, Mama, my husband did this or that, you gotta, you got to buck it up. And though your heart cries out, fix this, you need to say, sweetie, I love you, but I can't come between you and your husband. I can point you to Scripture, and Scripture says that you are to respect him and honor him, and you need to take these problems to him. If he has sinned against you, Matthew 18 applies. Go to him and show him his sin. If you need help with that, go to the elders of your church, but go to him first. And men, shame on you if you call your mama (laughs) or you talk to your dad endlessly about the problems that you have in your marriage. That's not the way it should be. And dads, you shouldn't be listening to that. You should be pointing them to the cross, pointing them to repentance, pointing them to biblical restoration. But don't jump in there and try to solve it your way. You're just going to get between them. And you're going you're to complicate the problem. And now, a very serious problem has now become a doubly serious and more complicated problem because you wanted to help in an unbiblical way. Don't do it respond to that situation in a biblical manner. Know your place. As soon as they say, I do, and I do, you don't anymore. You're done. Your input in that relationship is only there if it is asked for. You are not the authority over your daughter anymore. He is. You are not the authority over your your son anymore. He is the authority in that relationship. It's so crucial, moms and dads, as we're raising teenagers and starting to see them get married off, it's so important that you understand your role, that I understand my role in that relationship. And it's to encourage. It's to give counsel when it's asked for, but only within the parameters of Scripture. It's so critical. In fact, um, Dr. Wayne Mack, this is his latest book dealing with uh, a biblical view of in-laws. So needed today. And so, this is one of the biggest problems in marriages, in in marriage. And the depraved, self-centered nature is like this. It's like a wild animal that wants to live for itself and gratify its own desires and pursue its every whim and, and, and deny itself no pleasure. But marriage isn't like that. And that's not the way God designed it to be. And so when a married couple acts like that, their marriage begins to fail. What's the the original design? Well, let's look at it through the eyes of Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Keep your finger there in Genesis 2. But turn with me to Matthew 19 because here is Jesus' word on marriage, or at least one place where he speaks to the issue of marriage. And this is such a critical place, starting with verse 3. This is Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? I mean, he's saying, can we, can we divorce her for anything we think she can be divorced over? I mean, she burns the bagels, can I divorce her? If she doesn't please me anymore, can I divorce her? What does the law say? And he answered and said, have you not read? Love that phrase. Have you not read that he who created them? Notice, He immediately goes back to creation. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man divorce. And this is a critical text. By the way, someone talked to me after the first service about polygamy and uh, trying to speak to a Mormon who was 
uh, advocating polygamy, and he was coming up with scriptures, good scriptures, and he said, you know, it never occurred to me to go back to Genesis 1. And, and, but it's obvious now that you think about it, how many people did God create for Adam? How many women? One. Eve. Not Eve and Ethel, in case Eve didn't work out. <laughs> Not Adam and Steve, in case Eve didn't work out with Adam. It was Adam and Eve, created two, only two. You two are together. I make you companions together for life. There are no other options. And that's the way we should view our marriage. I'm Adam, she's Eve. There are no other options. And that's the way it should be. And there are some important implications here. You see, God's original design was not for man to have many wives or to remarry and remarry and remarry and remarry. And I understand that there are occasions when uh, a spouse, will, a husband will lose his wife by death. And that's why that phrase in the marriage vows, until death do us part. And Paul will explain this in, in 1 Corinthians 7, that when that happens, the widow is free to remarry. It's fine. But not divorce. Second notice in verse 5. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Quoting out of Genesis. The word joined here is important in the Greek word. The Greek word for this is kalo, which means to glue. It's the idea of a strong bond that holds the two together in an unbreakable union. The King James Version says to cleave. It's the idea of willfully being glued together. We choose to do it, and we choose to remain in that state until one of us dies. And so marriage was to be a companionship that was exclusive and comprehensive and lasts so long as both are alive to forsake all other binding unions and cleave exclusively to his mate. It's the kind of companionship which demands that all other relationships bow before it. Better to lose one's father and mother and closest friends than to put a wedge between these two companions. A man who understands this aspect of marriage will communicate to his wife that all of his friendships, his basketball buddies, his Super Bowl buddies, his work buddies, whatever, are nothing to him compared to his love and devotion to her. I mean, your relationship with those guys needs to change. And ladies, you got a whole list of girlfriends that you like to do whatever girls do. You know what? When you got married, that was supposed to change. It doesn't mean you don't have those friendships anymore, but they should fade in comparison to your devotion to your wife. And so a woman who understands this will make her husband first priority over every other desire of her life. And so will the husband, and neither will allow any other priority to come between them because they are willingly glued together with a strong bond of love and covenant devotion. Third, notice the text goes on. One man, one woman, strong bond, And now at the end of verse 5, one flesh. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so you see, so close is their relationship that now as far as God is concerned, they are no longer two people, but one. Functionally, they are one. Now, They function not as individuals with different ambitions, different values, different goals, but as one person with one set of ambitions and one set of goals designed for the good of both and the glory of God because now they are one. And practically, you know how this works out? If somebody comes to me and says, hey, what are you doing Friday night? Um, We'd like to have you over for dinner. You know what my response is not going to be? It's not going to be, sure, no problem, we'll be there. You know what I'm going to say? That's a great idea. Let me check with my wife, and I'll get back with you. It's not about abdicating headship. It's about putting my own interests aside, knowing that I am no longer one person. I am now one with another. And God sees us functionally as one. 
I can't be out there doing my own thing and making my own plans and ignoring her ambitions and her desires and the things that that she wants to see happen in our family. And you know what? If somebody comes to her, you know what she's going to say? She's going to say, you know, that's a wonderful idea. We'd love to meet with you for lunch or for dinner. Let me check with my husband and I'll get back with you. Why? Because functionally, we are one. And that's the way God designed it. And every time a couple has a baby, and for some of us it means more times than others, but (laughs) the truth of one flesh That one flesh relationship, now that we had it invisibly as a married couple, as Karat and Dinara do now, invisibly they are one to the glory of God. And if God should bless them with children, that union now becomes visible. And the glory of God, the image of God is passed on to the next generation. Fourth, notice in verse 6, That marriage is a work of God. This is important too. Verse 6, we're still in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, whatever God has joined together, let no man divorce. Your version may say separate, and that's correct. But the whole issue is divorce. What God has joined together, let no one separate. What does that mean? What are the implications of that? It's simply this. If you're married, you look over at that husband of yours, and you say, man, I should have, I should have made a better choice than this. I could do better than this. Look, that is totally the wrong perspective. You know how you got that husband? God gave him to you. And husband, you know how you got that wife? It wasn't because of your bad choice or your good choice. When I look at my wife, I think, you know, I'm not too sure about her ability to choose, but I made a great choice. (laughs) But really, that's foolish because it was God's choice. God gave her to me. It is not up to me to decide if I do and when if I don't. I mean, if God gave her to me, if I am married to her, I can only come to one conclusion. That was God. That was God. And you may look at your husband or your wife and say, I wish he had given me somebody else. It's not for you to say. He has put you in the garden, as it were, and gave you Eve. And like her or not, she's the only one you get. And so figure out how to glorify God in that. Figure out how to be joyful in that. And that's simply just another way of saying, Learn how to obey the scriptures, and the joy will come. For those who are submissive to the word of God in their marriage and love one another as their own flesh, who view their lifelong bond with their spouse as a blessing of the Lord and seek to magnify his glory in the way that they treat one another, it's a blessed miracle every day. Marriage is a blessed miracle every day. I'll tell you, I don't know what my life would be like today if God hadn't blessed me with the godly wife that I have, my beloved Christine. She is the joy of my life. I don't know what my life would be like today. But you know what? I don't have to wonder because God did it. And I don't, know, I don't want to know what it would be like otherwise. Nothing on earth has been more precious to me than this lifelong gift that God has given me when he gave me my wife. There's nothing on earth more valuable, more precious, more worthy of my devotion and protection than my marriage to this amazing woman. My devotion is not first of all to my children, and they know that because I tell them. I think the best thing I can do for my children is to give them the security of knowing I love their mother more than life itself. And no matter what comes, I will be devoted to her. And they will not be allowed to get between us. And when my children leave, as difficult as that's already becoming, when my children leave, my wife and I are going to have a joyful life together. Because we've been nurturing this relationship now for 23 years and will continue to do so with them or without them. And they get the joy of living in that kind of security. 
There's nothing on earth more valuable and more precious and more worthy of protection than that. But that's the way marriage was intended to be, right? One man, one woman, strong bond, one flesh, work of God. What an amazing gift. What a glorious thing marriage is. But you know, it doesn't always work out that way. And not everybody stays married for life. And that's what Paul's going to deal with in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And there's one reason why it doesn't work out. Sin. Sin. That's the problem. It's always the problem. And so, if you're in a marriage where you're struggling a little bit, maybe a lot, or maybe you're thinking about getting married, or maybe the wedding bells are almost ringing, and you're just making preparations, getting ready for marriage. We don't have time for me to unpack all of the things that you need to know, unless you're going to get married in this church, and then I'm happy to do the premarital counseling. But let me just give you two principles that if you apply these two for the glory of God in your own joy, it would do more to turn your marriage around to make it what God wants it and what you always wanted it to be than anything else I know, even from Scripture. Now, I'm assuming here that you both know the Lord, and I know I can't make that assumption all the time, but I am speaking to this church and to those who are listening perhaps on the Internet. If you both know the Lord... You practice these two things every day of your life and your marriage will be what God wants it to be and what you want it to be. So, you ready to know what the two things are? Number one, I've got some things to skip here because I want to get to these. God's solution to the marriage problem. Number one, resolve to love one another biblically. Resolve to love one another biblically. You say, I'm not sure that's helpful. It will be. Give me another minute. Here's the problem. The reason it's not intuitive that that's particularly helpful is because we don't understand what biblical love is. There's two kinds of love in this world, in our culture. There's the Roman kind of love, and there's the Hebrew biblical kind of love. The Roman kind of love is all about Cupid, shooting you with his arrow, you're walking down the street, you see a pretty girl, you see, you know, this guy who's nice to you and, and he's tall, dark, and handsome, and then, bing, you fell in love. You develop a relationship with that guy. And you've got your idols. He's got his idols. And as long as those idols are kind of going in the same direction and complement one another, then your idolatry kind of works out. But as soon as your idols conflict with one another, guess what happens? Cupid's arrow falls out, and you fall out of love. You fall into love, you fall out of love. That is not the biblical model. You know what love is according to the Bible? Let me give you a definition, and then we'll see if the Word of God supports it. Love is this. Love is giving to the other person whatever you have that they need because God wants you to. That's love. Now, you want me to say it again? You should take notes right here. I'm helping you. Write this down. Love is giving to the other person whatever she needs that I have because God wants me to. Let me say it again. Love is giving to him whatever you have that he needs because God wants you to. And you know what? When you're living like that, the joy will come. I've talked to a number of people over the years who have had arranged marriages. We don't see a lot of that here in our culture, although some of you dads are scheming. It's just not going to work, I tell you. <laughs> but here's, here's what they tell me. There was a girl that I worked with at American Airlines, and we asked her what she was doing for the weekend. She said, I'm getting married. And I said, uh, I didn't even know you were engaged. She said, yeah, I don't even know the guy. Um, but here's, here's what Christian people have told me over the years. I knew somebody in seminary who told me this. Um, he said, you Americans have it all backwards. 
He said, when you marry, you're so hot and boiling for each other. It's like, a, it's like two pots of hot water mixing together. And then for the rest of your marriage, the pot gets set off the burner and you slowly cool. He said, for us, it's the complete opposite. We start out cold as ice. And for the rest of our marriage, it just gets hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter as they warm up to each other and grow in grace. You know how that works? You don't have to have Cupid stabbing you in the back with his arrow, sticking you in the back, stabbing you in the back. I'm not sure. Here's what you need. No matter who that person is, if the two of you are committed to giving whatever you have that they need just because God told you to, Oh, my goodness. Your love for that person, oh, you'll feel it. And they'll feel it. And it'll be lasting. Let me give you some scriptures to think about in terms of a definition of love. Here's one that you might not know. John 3.16. You know that one? Come on, at least smile at that. John 3.16. Say it with me. For God so... Love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You know another way of saying that? God loved the world so much that he gave to the ones he loved everything that was necessary that he had And he did it for his own glory. You want another text? Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives, love your wives as Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself for her. Gave how much of himself? Everything he had. Did he have a warm, fuzzy feeling about that? Think of Gethsemane. Think of the garden. God, if it be possible to do this any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. Whatever is necessary, whatever is needed, because we love them, we give. Love. Love is to give whatever the other person needs that you have because God asks you to. How about this? Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Mark 10, 45. This is just a sampling of scriptures. You can find this all over the Bible. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life a ransom for many. Beloved, to love is not to feel. It is to give. And give, and give, regardless of how you feel. That's love. And if you're in a struggling marriage, it wouldn't take me more than a session or two to sit down with you and show you where you're failing to love. And you're going to give me all kinds of excuses. Well, he doesn't treat me right, or she burns the bagels, or, you know, she doesn't make my dinner on time, and the house is disorderly when I come home. Really? You got a scripture for that? I mean, what what Bible passage are you thinking of? Love is patient. Why? Because that's what the need of the moment is. Love is kind. Why? Because that's what she needs from me. Love is not jealous. Love keeps no record of wrong. Why? Because that's what she needs from me. If we're going to glorify God and show the world what God is like, that's what's needed. And so I'm devoted to giving it, no matter how I feel or how she may respond. That's the way God treated us. I mean, think about the response he got trying to save us. Get away from us. We don't want you. Crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. It was not a happy reception. And he could have said, fine. Fine, I'll just, go, I'll just go home. I'll just go home to my dad. He didn't. Why? Because he loved. And because he loved, that love was manifest in giving what he had, his life. 
to meet the other person's need because his daddy told him to do it. And that's all we need. You want to know how to turn your marriage around, men? You want to start turning that thing around and start loving your wife biblically? Does she need affection? You say, I'm, I am not a, an affectionate guy. Oh, okay. You got a scripture for that? What do you mean, I? Why don't you start that with I? Love to say that in counseling. Why don't you start that with I? This isn't about I. It's about her. And it's about God. And it's the whole point. Does she need time? Less time at the office, more time with the kids, more time with her? Does she need your help? Maybe educating the children or repairing the house? Or a break from the children now and then? Does she need you to lead spiritually, family worship? Maybe just nitty-gritty stuff like scheduling or finances? Maybe she's paying the bills and you just need to figure out how to help her. Maybe you're paying the bills and she doesn't know anything about the money. Maybe you need to tell her. Does she need spiritual nourishment, encouragement, intimacy? Pray, read, read books with her, minister together in some way. Women, do you want to start turning your marriage around and start loving your wife, your husband? Start loving your husband biblically. Does he need respect? Does he need affection and intimacy? Does he need help with keeping spending under control? Does he need the children to be disciplined more consistently when he's gone? I mean, you think about it. Come up with your own list. That's my list. That's convicting enough for me right there. To love is to give, regardless of how you feel. Now, I understand, you know, we're talking about needs here. I understand the whole problem with needs theory and the psychobabble that's all connected with needs theory. That's not what we're talking about. And that whole needs theory thing says, I can't function the way God wants me to unless you meet my needs, the whole his needs, her needs thing. That's not what we're talking about. It's saying, you know what? If my needs don't get met, if my desires don't get met, that does not prevent me from meeting yours. If I don't get everything that I was looking for in this marriage, or you're not respecting me right now, that doesn't let me off the hook of loving you and serving you and blessing you. You love. And so the first principle is this, to love one another biblically. Second principle is this, resolve to deal with sin in your relationship biblically. That's not, I'm sorry. That's not, I apologize. It's not, oops. (laughs) It's not, ignore it. Ephesians 4.26, be angry, but don't sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. You know what happens if you do that? You'll get mad at each other. You'll go to bed. You'll have your backs to each other. Next morning, you'll wake up. You'll still feel the sting of it, but it won't be as bad as it was the night before. And then you'll leave each other and go to work, and you've got to function at home. You've got kids at home or you've got things to do at home. And you come home, and, and you just do the things you need to do. And after a while, you don't feel the sting of that sin the previous night. And then you go another night, and the sting gets less. And another day, you know you're not hardly feeling it at all. And then about the fourth day, I mean, it's gone. Or so you think. It's like Lazarus in the tomb for four days. After four days, behold, he stinketh. (laughs) After a few days, it's still there. You may not be feeling it anymore, but it's starting to rot and corrupt and fester. And it's only a matter of time before those same circumstances come around again and you sin with one another, against one another again. And guess what? Now you not only have the new sin, but you've got that stinky, rotten, old thing that you swept under the carpet that's never been dealt with, and that makes the new sin far worse than the old one. And after a while, you just stop speaking to each other. After a while, it just becomes rote. And then after a while, you say, you know what? Uh, you don't love me, and I don't love you. Let's just... And then, and then the children plead with you not to go. Deal with sin biblically. 
You want to know how, how to have fellowship with one another? In marriage, true, deep, joyful fellowship, there's a very easy, and not easy to do, but easy to understand. And we've talked about this. I've mentioned it the last two weeks. This is so important. But here's the text, 1 John 1, 7. John says, if we walk in the light, and he's specifically in this context talking about keeping short accounts of sin before God and one another. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I mean, I would expect him to say we'd have fellowship with God. It's not what he says. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His son cleanses us from all sin. You want to have fellowship with your mate, your fiance, your girlfriend, your wife of 25, 50 years? The secret is the same. In every relationship, it may just be a friendship. It's simply this. Deal with your sin biblically. That means don't wait a long time Deal with it before the sun goes down. If the sun has already gone down, fine. You have 24 hours to figure out how you're going to fix this. And don't fix it. Confess it. Whenever you realize that you failed to love your mate, which is just a euphemism for I've sinned against her, either actively or passively, make it right. Do it quickly. Don't let the sun go down before you sit down with him or her and you say something like this. You got to get this. Somebody told me in the service last week, because they were getting counsel here, and uh, a family that's been struggling for some time, and the husband said, brother, everyone in this church needs to understand transactional forgiveness. It has changed my marriage. And here's how it works. You sin against your wife, doesn't matter, even if she doesn't know it. Sometimes this happens. My wife will come to me and say, honey, remember when I did that? No. Did you do that? Yeah, I did that. It was sin. Help me here, you know? (laughs) But here's what you do. You go to her and you say, honey, when I did that or when I failed to do active, passive, whatever it was, when I did that or said that or implied that, I realize, looking back on that, that was, that was a sin against God, and it was a sin against you. And I am so sorry. And I need to ask your forgiveness. Will you forgive me? The four most important words in any marriage or any parenting relationship. Will you forgive me? And biblically, you know what her... Response is going to be, yes, I forgive you. Tell you what, you're living like that, you're going to know the joy. You're going to know the joy. As soon as you have dealt with the sin, then biblically, and then get back around to uh, working on loving biblically. And so all of life is repentance and faith, right? Repent of past sin, we exercise faith. And in a marriage relationship, that means love, 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 love. That's faith. Doing it no matter how you feel. Repentance, faith. Repentance, faith. That's the whole of the Christian life. It's the whole of your married life if you want the joy of knowing it. And so these two principles alone will do far more to restore your marriage than anything else I know. And it will enable you to get back to the business of showing the world what God is like in your marriage. Marriage is a glorious thing, beloved. When two people realize that God created marriage to be one man, one woman, strong bond, one flesh, work of God, and they live in obedience to his word in these crucial areas, marriage produces joy beyond words. And those of you who've been married a long time are smiling at me because you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I hope to be married and joyful as long as you. Just remember this, God's glory is beautifully magnified in the joyful marriage of two sinners who are devoted to showing the world what God is like. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for these truths in your word. They are amazingly comforting and challenging at the same time. 
Lord, I don't know that a married person in this room can, can hear these things, including myself, and, and not see sin and not see past failing. No, Father, I pray that you would encourage us by your grace that we can live in a manner that's pleasing to you, not perfectly, but living by repentance and faith in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. And then we can know the joy of living in a marriage that honors you and pleases you and gives great pleasure and joy to us and to our children. And so we pray that you teach us and change us and sanctify us by your truth. Oh, Lord, your word is truth. So we praise you for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.